Let's open God's Word this morning to John chapter 6. We turn to this passage for the second time in as many weeks to glean from other parts of the chapter that were not brought up last week. John chapter 6, verses 25, and we'll read through verse 63 this time. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, whence camest thou hither? And Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. And they said therefore unto Him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 29 and 30. This is found in the back of our songbooks on page 17. This morning we consider questions and answers 78 through 80. Do then the bread and the wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all, but as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof appointed of God, so the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ, though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ Jesus. Why then doth Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood of the new covenant in his or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks thus not without great reason, namely, not only to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink whereby our souls are fed to eternal life but more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of His true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs and remembrance of Him and that all of, our suffering, that all of His sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own person suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God." What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which He Himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ, who according to His human nature is is now not on earth, but in heaven at the right hand of God His Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them, so that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, 
and an accursed idolatry. In our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, we come to the second of three Lord's Days concerning the Lord's Supper. Last week we looked at the first of those three, Lord's Day 28, which set before us the meaning and the significance of the Lord's Supper and taught us how we are nourished spiritually by the body and blood of Christ Himself. When we come to Lord's Day 30, at least the second and third questions and answers, there we will consider for whom this supper has been instituted. That is, we'll look at, we'll face the question of who is a worthy partaker of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. This Lord's Day, though, Lord's Day 29, focuses on the relationship between the elements and the reality to which they point, the sign and the, si- the thing signified. Which is to say, this Lord's Day focuses on the question of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. And in addressing this subject, the, Lord, the Heidelberg Catechism takes a polemical approach. And by that word polemical, we mean that it addresses some error. It speaks of some false teaching and explains why that's wrong and sets the truth over against that. And that's that that is the approach is evident from the very outset. Question 78 asks, do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? And the question is worded that way because there are others who do teach that it becomes the very body and blood of Christ. And the Heidelberg Catechism will say that's not how we are to understand this. Now since Lord's Day 29 takes this polemical approach, we are also going to include question and answer 80 of Lord's Day 30 because it takes the same approach. Really, it focuses on the same question of the presence of Christ in the Supper, and it also takes a polemical approach where there the polemic is focused on the Roman Catholic Mass and goes so far as to call it an accursed idolatry. So we include that in our study of Lord's Day 29 this morning. And in this connection, we have read again John chapter 6. And it's worth acknowledging at the outset there are those who would object to this. There are those who would say John chapter 6 has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. Because Christ had not instituted the Lord's Supper yet when Jesus gave the instruction that He did in John chapter 6. And what is more, the the specific language, the wording that we find in John chapter 6 is distinct from the language, the wording that we find in the institution of the Lord's Supper. So they would say, you may not use John chapter 6 to understand the Lord's Supper. And we would say, that thinking is flawed. Because while it's true that John chapter 6 is not about the Lord's Supper, it's also true that the Lord's Supper is all about what Jesus teaches here in John chapter 6. Because here in John chapter 6, Jesus speaks of Himself as the bread of life. And He calls His audience to eat His bread, to drink His blood, and thereby be given everlasting life. And that's exactly what the Lord's Supper is teaching us about. 
How we must partake of Jesus Christ. Of His broken body, of His shed blood in order to have eternal life with our God. So, the Lord's Supper has everything to do with what's being taught in John chapter 6. And therefore, we may use John chapter 6 to help guide us in our understanding of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. For both of them, John 6 and the Lord's Supper, make clear that we are to eat the bread of life. And that is the theme for this morning sermon on Lord's Day 29. Eating the bread of life. First, we will look at the bread. Second, at the eating. And then third, at the nourishment. It's worth indicating ahead of time that in all three points, we will follow the same pattern. We will begin with a negative saying it's not physical. It's not a physical bread, not a physical eating, not physical nourishment. Instead, positively, the second half of each point will be the positive truth that it's spiritual. It's a spiritual bread. It's a spiritual eating. And therefore, it's spiritual nourishment that we receive. So let's start with the bread. And the bread is obviously Christ Himself. That's clear from John chapter 6. Verse 48, for example, Jesus says, I am that bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. This is also evident from the words that our Lord used when He instituted the supper. He said, take, eat, this is My body. Christ is the bread. However, that raises the question that's asked in question 78. Do then the bread and wine, that is the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, become the very body and blood of Christ? And when it speaks of the the very body and blood, it's talking about His physical body and blood. Or to use a word that was more common among the Reformers, His it's talking about his corporal body and blood. Then corporal there not being a high-ranking military official, but a word describing our physical bodies. So that the question here really has to do with Christ's presence. Is he physically present in the Lord's Supper? And the answer of the Heidelberg Catechism is not at all. But now this needs to be said because of the wrong views concerning. Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. And there's the wrong view of the Roman Catholic Church as well as the wrong view of the Lutheran Church. First of all, there's the error of the Roman Catholic Church which teaches that in the Mass, when the priest takes the elements and blesses them, they are transformed into the body, the physical body and the physical blood of Jesus Christ. So that if you ask question 78 to the Roman Catholic Church, do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? They would say, certainly they do. For they argue that a miracle takes place so that the elements are transformed into Christ's corporal body and blood. And they would appeal to John chapter 6. They would say, look, he, he speaks of himself as the bread of life. And he speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Therefore, he's pointing ahead to when he will institute the Lord's Supper and he will give himself physically in and through that sacrament. And hearing their view, we are led to ask, well, how can that be Christ's body and Christ's blood? Because it's bread and wine. 
that bread still feels like wine. It still looks, or excuse me, that bread still feels like, looks like, tastes like bread. And the same with the wine. It still tastes like wine. It still looks like wine. It still smells like wine. Well, they have an explanation. They would argue that the miracle of the Mass is that the external properties, the external characteristics, what they would call the accidents, those remain unchanged, but the, the essence, the, the inner core, the substance is what is changed. Normally, the two go hand in hand. The external properties, the characteristics corresponds to the, the substance, the essence of a thing. But they would say, in the Roman Catholic Mass, when the priest blesses the elements, though the external properties remain unchanged, yes, it still looks like bread and tastes like bread, it still looks like wine and tastes like wine, the substance is transformed. And that's where we get the name for this doctrine, transubstantiation. Trans is the preposition meaning change. And then you have substance because they're arguing it's the substance, the inner core, the essence that's being changed while the external properties remain the same. And they would say this takes place when the priest speaks the words of institution. This is my body in the Latin hoc est corpus meum. And interestingly, this is where that little phrase hocus pocus comes from. Children, you have heard that phrase. That's the, those are the stereotypical words that a magician uses when he's about to pull a rabbit out of the hat or turn a handkerchief into a, bun, into a set of flowers or whatever it may be. Hocus pocus. Those are the magic words for a magician. And those words really find their root in the Roman Catholic tradition. Because it would happen that the priests would say those words of institution so quickly to an audience that did not know Latin that what they heard when the priest was saying hoc est corpus meum was hocus pocus. Those are the magic words they waited for. At which point, that bread became the physical body of Jesus Christ. That's the view of the Roman Catholic Church. And they're so adamant in this view that they would argue that they would say that anyone who denies this is to be anathema, that is, accursed of God. So, first of all, there's the error of the Roman Catholic Church, but they're not alone in a wrong understanding of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, because there's also the error of the Lutherans, including Martin Luther himself. For although Martin Luther was used by God to bring many reforms to the church. And although he did not fully agree with the Roman Catholic Church concerning the Lord's Supper, yet fundamentally it's the same in that the Lutheran Church likewise would argue Christ is physically, corporally present. They explain it differently. Rather than saying that the substance is changed into the body and blood of Christ, they would argue that Christ's body is with, in, and under the elements so that their doctrine is called 
is what we call consubstantiation. Substance, again, the, the essence of the thing, but now con, the prefix, because that word means with. The substance is with the elements. The Christ's body is infused into them. That's their view. Both of these views are wrong though. We've explained the views themselves and now we need to show why we reject these views. Why we say this is not the proper understanding. And that's especially where question and answer 80 comes in. Question and answer 80 reads, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? And the first half explains positively the truth concerning the Lord's Supper. And then the second half reads this way, but the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine and therefore is to be worshipped in them so that the Mass at bottom is, and now here's the twofold conclusion, two reasons why we must reject the Roman Catholic view. The first is this. It's nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Mass denies the truth concerning Christ's sacrifice because according to them, since Christ is physically present in the elements, that means when the priest breaks the bread, he is breaking the body of Christ. And someone goes so far to say, Christ feels that. He, he experiences that, that pain when the, the priest is breaking the elements. And the same applies to the wine. When the priest is pouring out the wine, they would say, Christ is really being re-sacrificed. And the error gets even worse because they go so far as to say, it has to be this way. For the sake of the forgiveness of sins, Christ must be re-sacrificed over and over again and again for there to be atonement for your sins. But that's a denial of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews makes clear He died once on the cross of Calvary. And that one death is sufficient to pay for all the sins of His people. So on the one hand, it's a denial of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. On the other hand, it leads to and is idolatry. That's the second conclusion at the very end. That it's at bottom nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. And again, this flows from their view of Christ's presence. If He's physically present, then therefore He is to be worshipped in the bread and the wine so that the Roman Catholic Church calls the people to venerate the elements. But again, that's idolatry. We're to worship the one true living God. And to worship anything else, and that includes bread and wine, is idolatry which is accursed of God. So we reject the Roman Catholic teaching of the Mass. But we also reject the, the error of the Lutherans because even though in their view Christ is not being re-sacrificed, their view nevertheless is subject to this second charge regarding idolatry. 
Now here we have to be fair that the Lutherans do not call upon the people to venerate the elements. But they would not say it was wrong to do so. So that if someone did worship the elements because Christ is in, with, and under the elements, you may do that according to the Lutheran church. And therefore, they are allowing for this same idolatry. And it's in light of all this that the Heidelberg Catechism rightly teaches Christ is not physically, corporally present in the Lord's Supper. But does that mean He's absent? And the answer to that question is no. He's still present. Whether someone's Roman Catholic, whether they're Lutheran, or whether they're Reformed, we would all agree that Christ is present. The difference is regarding the mode of His presence, the manner of His presence. We would say He's present spiritually. That's how we are to understand this. And that's what the Catechism is teaching us in question and answer 78. Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. But as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof appointed of God, so the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ though agreeably to the nature and property of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ Jesus. And that phrase toward the end, though agreeably to the nature and property of sacraments, is important because it reminds us that sacraments are signs and seals. And implied in that is that there is a distinction between the sign and the thing signified between the elements, and the reality to which they point that belongs to the very nature of a sacrament. That there's a distinction between the two and that the one does not turn into the other. But yet at the same time, there's a connection. They are signs and seals. They point us to the reality and to the truthfulness of it. And so there's this distinction between the two, but yet a connection. And that connection is brought about by the work of the Spirit. For in the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit unites Christ to the bread and to the wine. It's not a physical connection, not a physical union, but spiritually. Otherwise, they would just be empty signs. There'd be nothing to them. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, Christ is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper. So that when we eat the bread and drink the wine, the Holy Spirit is at work so that the believer is eating and drinking Christ. And that's true because the sacrament was designed this way. Christ set the elements apart when He instituted the Lord's Supper so that this would be true. Christ is spiritually present present. He's spiritually united to the elements. And all of that is in harmony with John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, in that discourse, Jesus calls Himself the bread of life, but He makes very clear 
as the bread of life. He's not, a, he's not physical bread, but spiritual. And he makes that clear early on when the, the people say, look, Moses gave us manna from heaven. Christ tells them, no, it wasn't Moses who gave you that, but the Father gives you the true bread, and I am that bread of life. But he also points out, he makes clear that he's talking about a spiritual reality, a, a spiritual truth, because he acknowledges or points out that those who ate that physical bread, the manna in the Old Testament, they're dead. From a physical point of view. But whoever eats this bread, the true bread of life, will never die. So it, it has to be talking about a spiritual bread, a, a spiritual presence of our Savior Jesus Christ. So in the Lord's Supper, we do not focus on the physical, but rather on the spiritual. But that does not at all take away from His real presence. And that needs to be said because we are so earthly-minded that at times it's difficult for us to do justice to the reality of that which is spiritual. Unless I can taste something, unless I can touch it, unless I can see it, I have a hard time believing that it's true, that it's there. We are earthly minded, but we must recognize that Christ is really present. And perhaps one of the most helpful ways to wrap our minds around this is to remember the truth concerning our God. You cannot touch God. You cannot see Him because God is spirit. There's no physical dimension to God. There's no substance. There's no material to God. But that does not take away from the fact that there is a God, that God exists. He's real, though He's spirit. And the same applies in the Lord's Supper. Though Christ is not physically present, that does not take away from the reality of His presence because His presence is spiritual, not physical. So that His presence in the Lord's Supper is really the same as His presence in the preaching. Christ is spiritually present in the preaching for Christ is set forth in the preaching. We hear the voice of Christ in the preaching and we partake of Christ by means of the Word preached. And so it is in the Lord's Supper. He's present spiritually. So why then have the signs? To help us along as those who are so earthly minded. God gives us these visible tokens so that we can touch something. So that we can see it with our eyes. So that we can taste it. And by faith say, as certainly as I have this piece of bread in my hand, as I taste it in my mouth, as I swallow it and digest it, I can be just as confident that Christ is really present. That I am partaking of Him through the work of the Spirit and by faith. And that does bring us to the eating. The eating Because the elements do not 
become the physical body and blood of Christ, but instead Christ is spiritually present, that then has an impact on how we eat Jesus Christ. And again, it's not physical, but instead it's spiritual. This is not a physical eating. And again, this needs to be said over against the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. For they would teach that we partake of Christ and are united to Him by physically eating and drinking Christ. And this goes hand in hand with their view of the sacraments that they are effective in and of themselves. That one, even if one partakes without understanding. So that for the Roman Catholic Church, Grace comes by chewing and swallowing. That's the activity that is required. And again, they would point to John chapter 6. They would argue Christ speaks of eating His flesh and drinking His blood. Clearly, He he means that you're supposed to use your mouth to do this. That's the view of the Roman Catholic Church. The Lutherans, they do rightly emphasize the need for faith. But nevertheless, they still have embedded into their theology that this is a physical partaking. And such teaching, especially of the Roman Catholic Church, is erroneous. It's wrong. So again, we've noted the view and now we explain why it's wrong. And the primary reason is that the clear implication, if not the outright teaching in these cases, is that both believer and and unbeliever partake of Christ in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or the Roman Catholic Mass. That's the logical implication, if not the outright teaching, because if he's physically present and you partake of him by taking this piece of bread, putting it in your mouth, chewing it and swallowing it, well, then it means it does not matter whether you have been regenerated or whether you are still a dead sinner In both cases, you partook of Christ. But that cannot be. Because to partake of Jesus Christ is to be given life. That's what Christ is making clear. Whoever eats this bread of life will live forever. John 6, verse 54, for example. Whoso eateth My flesh and drinketh My blood hath eternal life. To eat and drink Christ is to be united to Christ. It's to have His his life flow down to us and to, to give us life and to support that life. And that's not the case for an unbeliever. For the unbeliever, the only thing he or she receives if they partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily is that physical bread and that physical wine. They do not partake of the spiritual reality because there's no spiritual life in them to be fed, to be nourished. And so it cannot be that eating is just a matter of putting a piece of bread in your mouth, chewing it and swallowing it. But instead, eating and drinking Christ it's a matter of faith. This is something we do spiritually. And that's the, the positive. We partake by faith. And that comes out when we study closely John chapter 6. For while it's true 
He speaks of eating His flesh and drinking His blood. And while it's true that the people who were there listening that day were a little confused by this, comes out, for example, in verse 52. Verse 52, the Jews therefore strove among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They were perplexed. And even the disciples, not necessarily the twelve, but the broader disciples, struggled with this. We read in verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Though all that's true, there ought not to have been this confusion. And we say that not as though we're holding ourselves up above those who were listening in on that day. But instead we say that as those who are part of a tradition that has studied this passage over and over again and come to see that Christ did make very clear that He was talking about believing in Him. So that prior to ever ending this discourse, there were at least three times in which He made it crystal clear that you were to eat and drink Him by faith. He did that at the very outset. Verse 29, for example. The previous verse, the people are asking, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And the answer is, remember, this is right at the beginning of the the dialogue. Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. This is a matter of faith. And then he makes the same point a second time. Immediately after, he says for the first time, I am the bread of life. This is verse 35. After introducing this idea of bread, he he states explicitly for the first time, I am the bread of life. But now notice what he says after that. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. And what we have here is this intermingling, this blending of the the metaphorical language, the, the illustration with Language that's not metaphorical. Language that's very clear because he speaks of hungering. Or really, he speaks of never hungering so that you would expect him to have said, he that eateth me shall never hunger. But that's not what he said. He, he said, he that cometh to me. Clear language. And then he brings in the metaphorical language, shall never hunger. And the same thing with the second half of the verse. He speaks of those who would never thirst. And you would expect the the verb prior to that to be, those who drink of me shall never thirst. But that's not what he says. He says those who believe shall never thirst. So that when later on he speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, we have to think back to verse 35 and say, ah, he's talking about coming to him by faith. He's talking about believing in him. That's how we eat and drink Christ. But then he also makes this clear a third time in verse 47. Verse 47, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. And now the context is made clear. That if you eat this bread of life, you will have everlasting life. And now here he's telling them very clearly, how then do you have this everlasting life? How do you eat of him? He that believeth on me. Three times. He made it unmistakably clear. You partake of the bread of life by faith in Jesus Christ. 
And then at the end, He removed all doubt. When, after the disciples said this was a hard saying, He taught them in verse 63, it is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. It's not the physical flesh that profits. It's the Spirit who quickens, who makes alive so that we eat Christ spiritually by faith. As Augustine, the early church father, said famously, believe and you have eaten. Because faith, as the Belgian Confession explains, is the hand and mouth of the soul whereby we embrace Jesus Christ, whereby we lay hold of Him, whereby we receive Jesus Christ. So that we eat and drink Him when we say, I know that Christ gave His life at the cross of Calvary some 2,000 years ago, and I trust that He did so for me personally, for me individually. So that eating Him and drinking Him is a matter of looking to Him for life, recognizing I have no life in myself. Apart from Him, I'm a, a dead sinner and I need this bread. This bread come down from heaven. My life is found in Him. And the promise of the Lord's Supper is that when we partake of the signs by faith, we thus partake of Christ Himself. And the implication of all this is that there's the calling then to exercise our faith. Whether it's a matter of coming to the Lord's Supper to partake of the Lord's Supper, or whether it's a matter of coming to sit under the preaching, faith is required. The activity of faith, because it's not just a matter of showing up and going through the motions. There's no partaking of Christ if that's how we come. The Lord's Supper is not a magic trick. The minister does not just say, hocus pocus, and then everyone in the congregation gets a, an immediate influx of grace. But we partake of Him by faith. So that when we come to church, whether it's to hear the preaching Sunday after Sunday, or whether it's to partake or to observe the, the sacraments, baptism, or the Lord's Supper, that means we're to come exercising our faith. For it's only in that way that we will receive that spiritual nourishment that we so desperately stand in need of. And there is indeed nourishment for our hungry and thirsty souls. And like the bread and like the eating, that nourishment is not physical, but spiritual. Praise be to God, it's not physical. Because imagine for a moment, let's suppose this morning that the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutherans were right. That Christ is physically present in the elements. And that we partake of Him by taking the elements, putting them in our mouths, chewing them, and swallowing them. Let's grant that for the sake of our argument this morning. 
What good will that do for my soul? If it's just a physical meal that does nothing for my soul. I don't need Christ to be physically present in order for my body to continue to exist. Ordinary bread, ordinary wine, really any food will do for that. God has given us the means that we need to support our physical lives. But when I come to church on Sunday, it's not because I'm hungry physically, but because I'm starving spiritually. I'm famished to hear that word of God, your sins are forgiven. I'm starving for the the strength that I need to press on as a a pilgrim, as a soldier in the midst of this fallen world. I need spiritual nourishment, says the child of God. And if all that I get is physical, then I'm going to walk away starving. I'm going to be just as weak as when I walked in the door. We need something more than a physical meal. We need a spiritual meal. And thus, praise be to God, the nourishment is not physical, but it's spiritual. That's the meal we receive because in the Lord's Supper, we receive Christ Himself. He is the bread of life. And as we made so plain last week when we looked at Lord's Day 28, He is the nourishment that our hungry and thirsty souls need. And what a meal there is for us in the Lord's Supper. For by this meal we're given assurance. Lord's Day, excuse me, answer 79, the fourth line down or so. But more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of this true body and blood as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs and remembrance of Him. We're given assurance. That is, our faith is strengthened, especially the confidence of faith. What is more, there's nourishment for us here because the, the union that we have with Jesus Christ is strengthened. Answer 80, the third line down, alludes to that when it says that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ. And the idea there is not our initial engrafting by faith, but the fact that that bond, that union, it grows, it progresses, it gets stronger, especially in our experience of it. That's a meal. That's nourishment. But above all, the nourishment is life. That's what Christ taught us in John 6, verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Verse 58, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forevermore. As those united to Christ, we've been given life. And through the means of grace, the preaching, the sacraments, that life is supported. We're given regular influxes of grace to support that life, to strengthen that life. And we have that life on the basis of Christ's 
saving death. And that comes out from verse 51. We're reminded of the basis for all this in verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Christ speaks of giving His flesh. And here we do acknowledge and really call attention to the difference between the wording here and the difference between the wording in the Lord's Supper. There He spoke of His body. Here, flesh. So it's true. It's not so much pointing us to when Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, but really pointing us back to what we learn in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word was made flesh. He became a partaker of our flesh and blood. He assumed a true human nature. Why? Well, verse 51 tells us so that He could give His life for our life, so that we might have life. So that already here, Jesus Christ has in view the laying down of His life at Calvary. He already has on His mind the fact that He will give Himself as the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. And it's on the basis of that work, the giving of His flesh, the laying down of His life, that we who were dead now have life in Jesus Christ. Praise be to God that He not only gives us that life, but that He supports it all throughout our lives by means of by the means of grace. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we pray that Thou will evermore feed and nourish our hungry souls thereby. Strengthen our faith this morning and give us the grace that we stand in need of to press on as pilgrims and soldiers in the midst of this fallen world. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.